Okay, well, welcome everyone to another episode of Holy CV with me, Father Jamie Franklin, my good friend Clinton Collister. Clinton, hello, nice to nice to see you on, uh, albeit on Zoom. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's it's good to be back. D- did you have a good a good Easter holiday? Uh, yeah, well, um, <laughs> I was technically on holiday uh, after Easter Sunday, uh, but it, you know uh, how things are at the moment. Uh, I didn't really go anywhere, and I was uh, with my kids and stuff like that. So. Uh, it was fun, but didn't really necessarily feel like a holiday. Uh, but Easter was a really good weekend at our church. We had lots of people there, lots of kids. Um, so that was a very joyful thing. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's good. Yeah, our congregation is, is growing. It's grown even, well, it's grown during the lockdown. I think probably partly because of the lockdown, because there are people who want to come to church and um, they, their churches are shut. So, uh, yeah, so our, our, son, our junior church, as we call it, is, um, is much, much bigger than it's, than it's ever been. And uh, we get, we're getting new people quite regularly. So it's, it's interesting because we're, we're an Anglo-Catholic church and um, we get quite a lot of evangelicals coming to us at the moment. So that's really interesting um, to, to see them come along and, and to sort of um, see how they react and respond to the, the more Catholic aspects of, of what we do um because it's obviously extremely different to you know the local vineyard church whatever so that's 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 really interesting and on the whole people i i get the impression that people are really really uh, intrigued and um you know they they're not they don't seem to sort of put off by it so um so yeah so that's really cool actually well it, it's really interesting you bring that up i was just at this little study group called scriptorium yeah. I, I think i probably mentioned it on the podcast before uh, one of the churches in Cambridge open, opens its doors for postgrads who want to come together and pray and study. And anyway, our mutual friend, Stephen McGregor, was there. And it turns out he's been listening to, to all of these podcasts. Shout, shout out to Steve. And he, he, he likes what we're doing uh, because I think, you know, we take revelation and, and the sacraments and Christian faith seriously. But he's more of a reformed Calvinist yeah. sort of persuasion in the CV, yeah. and he was he was saying when, when I had to leave scriptorium, he's like, "Oh, so you're off to to make more of that Catholic propaganda." <laughs> <laughs> but he still likes he still likes the show, right? He, he mean, likes it though, yeah. yeah. So so there it is. I think Christian faith brings people together, even if they they disagree about yeah. some, certain ideas or whatever. So he's a. I mean, obviously, Stephen is not here to argue talk talk for himself but he's a he's a um he's a, a, a an ordinand in the church of england isn't he but he's, he 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 understands himself as more more of a calvinist so that's interesting isn't it because as far as i sort of understand calvin he sort of conflated the episcopate and the presbytery um so i don't know that's that's quite interesting isn't it i mean uh, as i say um i've got friends who are uh, uh, very close friends who are anglicans and, and calvinists but i never really kind of understand what what the deal is with that because that seems to be quite an important part of calvin's ecclesiology i'm not too clear on it either i i get kind of lost with that whole ecclesiology question when it comes to people of that persuasion because a lot of my friends who who come from lutheran or calvinist perspectives would say that they're just truly committed to the theology of saint augustine and that that they're you know, Calvin or Luther offer the best iteration of it. Yeah. But I mean, St. Augustine was a bishop. He he looked to St. Anthony, the monk, for great inspiration in his faith. The ecclesiology question, I can't quite square, yeah. but I'm maybe Stephen will come on sometime and yeah. talk to us about it. I mean, it, it would be interesting. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of common ground because he's into the into the show and he actually introduced us. Well, you and me. Oh, yeah, that's right. Actually, yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Yeah, no, I do, I do, I do find that that interesting. Um, but I mean, it seems to me that one of the one of the key distinctives of, of of being an Anglican is that we're both, as well as being Reformed, we're also Catholic. So we have that we have that emphasis on the episcopate as well, which is I think absolutely crucial. So, um, so for me, that's a big question. Um, but before we start getting into the deep. Theology, Clinton. Why don't you tell us how you are and what you've been doing? I'm doing well. So we we had, you know, pubs and restaurants and various things open up outdoors yesterday. And I went and met up with a friend, uh, Patrick, who 
scholar, intellectual history and, and law and that sort of thing. And he actually told me six months ago uh, about the theologian and who we're going to be talking about today. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. We, we went to the, actually the same place where we first met uh, on uh, Midsummer Commons. There's, there's this pub where you can sit outdoors and Fort St. George. And it was, it was hopping, lots of people there. Yeah. And, and we, we had a good time. It was fun. Yeah. 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 It's nice. It's nice that everything is open again. I mean, I, I've not been anywhere, but <laughs> it's <laughs> nice to drive. It's nice to drive past people and see them in the, in the, the pub gardens, uh, having a nice time. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that's, that's really cool, man. So, um, why don't we, why don't we go into it then, then Clinton? Um, let's talk about this. Uh, so we're talking today about uh, John Neville Figgis, uh, who I, I, I've been very open with you. This is an area of, um, this is a, not an area of knowledge for me. I don't know John Neville Figgis, so you're going to have to educate me here and, and tell me who this, who this theologian is, uh, you know, when he was around and, and so a little bit about him. So I'm still a John Neville Figgis neophyte. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've only read a couple of his books and how I found out about him, I was talking to Patrick and mentioned that, that I was um, looking at some poets who were influenced by Anglo-Catholicism and, and I'm very interested in Anglo-Catholic theology and practice and that sort of thing. And, and he asked me if I had, had read the works of Figgis and, and he said he really admired his social theory and his political theory. He, he studied under Lord Acton, and, and I guess he also studied under some important historians here at Cambridge. Yeah. And he contributed to a, a lot of uh, important work on associations and communities and civil society and, and the importance of those things flourishing in order for society as a whole to, to thrive. And so I guess Patrick was really taken with, with this side of his thought. And, and also said that his theology was worth reading. Yeah. So I picked up the gospel and human needs and the fellowship of the mystery. And I just thought it jumped off the page. It's, it's electric, his prose. It's, it feels like it could have been written today. Yeah. And so when, when, what, when were they written? Yes. Yeah. So, so he was, he was born in the late 19th century and he died in 1918 and he studied at Cambridge. He, he studied at St. Cat's and he studied history here. And I think, you know, while he was, while he was here, he became an Anglican and, and an Anglo-Catholic and he was ordained. And early on in his, in his um, time as a priest, he came under the influence of Charles Gore and, right. and some of that kind of German higher criticism and that more liberal Anglo-Catholicism that we were talking about with Father Ben. Yeah. And I guess it, it led him into a kind of sp spiritual hmm, crisis. And yeah. so he ended up coming back to, to a deep commitment to faith in the authority of, of Holy Scripture and, and the truth of revealed religion. Yeah. And that really comes through a lot in this, this book that we're going to be talking about today, the, the Gospel and Human Needs. Yeah. But so, so can I can I just ask was he was he um, involved in that kind of Lux Mundi school of theologians? You know that that um, sort of um, I always think of them as a kind of nineteenth century version of um, radical orthodoxy. You, do you know Do you know Lux Mundi? It was it was it was edited by by Gore, mm -hmm. and um, it was it was you know it was kind of that. I suppose it was. Is it is it's, it was Gore a liberal? Anglo-Catholic or I mean how would you how would you describe him this is Charles Gore we're talking about here the bishop right. so so I haven't gone deep into his work but the impression I get is that when it came to the, the authority of scripture that would be true that he was good in defending certain other doctrines but when it comes to the, the, the question of holy scripture and, and the miraculous yeah. that he veered in these directions and I, I don't think that Figgis actually contributed to that kind of thing, but but he does have a, another connection to Gore. So I think he came from a quite affluent family and, and background. And as he was taking his faith more seriously, he decided, well, if I'm going to be a Christian, I need to go all in. So he ended up becoming a monk right. uh, at, I think it's called the Community of the Resurrection in Murfield. Have you heard of yeah. this? 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. I've been there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So his, his papers and books are all there. Patrick oh. was telling me yesterday he has a bunch of unpublished articles and books. Okay. So that, that we, we, we should go sometime and check it out. Yeah, it's quite a cool place, actually. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's it like? Well, it's, it's, uh, so it's a monastery and a theological training college. So it's kind of, it's kind of on a, you have to drive upwards to get there. I mean, I've only been there once. It was in the winter and it was really cold. So you, you, it was, it's kind of near a, a village or, or a small town. You kind of have to drive up a hill to get there. So it, it, it feels quite epic going up there. And um, yeah, they've got, they've got a kind of a, quite, quite a reasonable sized com, size community of brothers there. And um, yeah, really sort of big, open, spacious church. And uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, I didn't, I didn't meet, I didn't really meet any of the students. So I don't know what the, what the kind of, um, what the seminary is like, but all the monks were very nice to me and they gave me some quite nice food while I was there. So it was, it was good. Yeah. I had a good time there. Cool. Yeah. And I guess he influenced another kind of monastic movement here in Cambridge, the Oratory of the Good Shepherd. When I was trying to find biographical information, they had an article where, where they were talking about how they always prayed for him and he was influential mm-hmm. back when they were first founded. And that's the, the community that Maskell was a part of, who we talked oh, about yeah. a few weeks ago. Yeah. All right. Cool, man. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess just to kind of sum, sum up to the end of his life. So, so he, he wrote all these important works of theology and political theory. And then sadly at the end of his life, he was on a, the Lusitania when it was torpedoed and he survived, but shortly thereafter he started to lose his mind. So he, he died in 1918, Mm. but he did, he did some good work for the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay, man. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about this then. What's, so I've read through some of these notes. So, so you were saying to me that this is, you sort of view him as, as responding to a kind of crisis of, of a loss of faith uh, in in culture, you know, to responding to to what modernism and um, you know, sort of increasing uh, secularism and, and so on. How, how what was his where's where's his sort of position? Yeah, so I, I think it's really fascinating what the project is with this with this uh, book, the Gospel and Human Needs. So it's based on his Halcyon lectures and and the premise of these lectures is you're defending revealed religion and in Christianity in particular as a revealed religion. And as somebody who kind of went through this modernist shift to a skeptical faith and returned to a more dogmatic faith, Mm. I think he's uniquely positioned to be giving these lectures. And so I, I noted a couple things from the preface and then I really wanted to hone in on his his chapter on revelation right. but in, in the preface i thought it was really interesting that he he says with miracles the same thing that makes miracles so unbelievable to people of a naturalist bent so many people who go to university kind of imbibe modernist philosophy they they look at miracles and say if we could just wipe those out of the new testament you know all that stuff about healing blind people or, or, uh, you know, raising from the dead or whatever, and, and have a rational religion, then we could reach the modern man, then we could reach the intelligentsia. And Figgis, his setup for this book seems to be that he actually thinks this is, this is completely backward if you're trying to reach not the, man the theorist, but man the, the actual worker, the man who lives in the world, yeah. the man who, who works with his hands. And he has lots of really interesting reasons for why he thinks this. And we'll get into those as we go along, I suppose. But I, I thought just in, that's a fascinating way to start this off. So he's yeah. saying, we, as, as people in the academy, assume, okay, we want people to believe in Christianity. We want them to say, I, I'm a Christian, go to church, whatever. And the way to do this, let's make it more reasonable. Let's make it more similar to the other religions. Let's make it uh, less supernatural. Yeah. And then the people will flood in. And he says, okay, as I've actually been studying what is the good news and what are human needs, I've concluded, no, people who, who farmers, people who work with their hands, people who live their lives, they're looking for a supernatural gospel, a revealed religion. And, and so he, 
it kind of opens up this question, why is this? Yeah. And I think this is still a really fascinating and relevant question for today. I don't know, what do you think of that as kind of a setup? For yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting. I was going to ask, so just to probe that a little bit. So what's the, what's the link between specifically the working man and the need for something supernatural? What, what, what is it there? What is it specifically about the working man that, that opens up that need? Yeah, so this might actually get into what, what he has to say in the chapter, but that's fine. So it seems like, according to Figgis, one of the things that, that miracles prove is that we're not in just a closed mechanical system, right? So it's not as if this is all just a sort of clockwork universe in yeah. which we're all cogs in the machine. But the fact that spirits can use matter as an instrument, can use nature as an instrument. So, so God can act within nature in surprising ways shows that God has freedom. Yeah. And he, he thinks that this is similar to the idea that, that man has freedom. So if we were just a sort of um, self-interested, self-preserving machine, mm. uh, then say, you, you see a stranger's child drowning in, in the lake, you don't dive off the ship to go save them because why, why would you risk yourself? You might not have, be around to take care of your own children, right? It, it, yeah. it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And yeah. yet we have the freedom to do that, Yes. right? Yeah. So he, he thinks there's an interesting connection here between God's miraculous freedom and people who, who live ordinary lives and, and believe that, that they do have some kind of power in those lives to make choices that are meaningful. Yes. Yeah. What do you, go on, go ahead. Well, okay, so part of what I think is fascinating about this is that he's contrasting the kind of common sense of the working man, that he does yeah. ha have the ability to make free choices that matter yeah. with the, the new faiths of his age. Yes. And we can go into the kind of face that he contrasts Christianity with in a moment. Yeah. But I guess initially, what do you think of his idea about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I totally see that. And I, I'm really I'm really interested in this idea of common sense <laughs> uh -huh. increasingly in this age that we're living in. Um, and um, it does it does chime with me because, um, you know, if you consider this issue of freedom and determinism, you would never, ever come. You would never, ever come to a deterministic position unless it was inculcated into you in some kind of academic setting you you just you just naturally believe that you have freedom because it seems so obvious that you do and uh, all right philosophically it might be an interesting question as to how you account for the reality of that freedom but nevertheless it is a reality and to deny the to deny that you have freedom is to deny um is to deny the facts of existence so so i think um it's to deny it's denied basically all human experience, I suppose you would say as well. So I think that that is, I think that that's um, a good observation. And I, I think that this idea that sort of you can be educated out of your common sense is something that really resonates with me. So, um, so I get that. And I, I, I like this. I, I also like this idea of um, framing these kind of questions about miracles and revelation around the, the concept of, of God's freedom, because I think that's an absolutely crucial uh, it's an absolutely crucial theological issue. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but or, or if I'm following following what you're saying properly, but but that's what I'm taking out of it so far. Right, and so I think he, he says, okay, in the same way this is true of miracles, that, that appeals to people, the idea that God could um, cho choose to act in this way yeah. through the instrument of nature, he thinks it's also true of other parts of Christianity that, that modernists want to do away with. So he says, take, take for instance, the sacraments, you know, yeah. you have, you have modernists who want to say, well, it's important that we all come together as a community, but it's, it's not important necessarily that these are supernatural means of grace that God gives us to grow into closer union with him. Or, yeah. Uh, and not, not just the, the sacraments, but he also says kind of the mysteries of the intellect yeah. So God could have made a more rational religion, but he does have certain mysteries involved that are stumbling blocks to some. Yes. And, and he goes into why he thinks that's actually extremely valuable uh, later. And then he, he says also, and this is something that I found really interesting, the emphasis on the, the, the idea that 
the good news to broken sinners actually speaks to the facts of life. So you, you have a lot of people who want to say, sin's not such a big deal. We're not actually sinners. You know, the, the doctrine of original sin is really mean. It makes us all sound bad or whatever. And he says, well, wait, wait a minute. Actually, this appeals to people because they have this experience in their life, like St. Paul says, where they do that which they don't want to do, right? They, they struggle hurting people in their lives or, or making bad decisions or whatever. And if, if they go to church and the priest just says, no, no, you're fine. You're cool. There's, there's nothing wrong. Yeah. It doesn't actually add up to them in terms yeah. of their own experience. It doesn't, it doesn't square. Yeah. It doesn't solve that problem. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so part of why this book so appealed to me when I started reading it is the more you get into it, the more I think, you know, George Santayana says those who do not learn from history are destined to repeat it. And, and I think somebody else says, you know, history, history doesn't repeat it rhymes. Yeah. But I definitely think there's some rhyming going on with kind of the spirit you find in the church right now and the spirit of the age and what he's describing. So as I was reading, I just kept thinking, wow, that sounds so similar to things I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are you picking up on some parallels as you were reading through yeah, these yeah. notes in this chapter? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so one of the things that, um, uh, you know, I I uh, see very strongly is the analogy between um, this kind of modernist approach to to Christianity and the sort of I guess what I would call quite broadly the sort of liberal Anglican approach, which you know seems to want to um, seems to want to interpret Christianity as a kind of philanthropic uh, enterprise and do away with the the supernatural elements of it at least to a to a very great extent or at least to sort of underemphasize them so so my my sort of my take on on how things are at the moment with with what i've seen of liberalism in the church is that um it's not so much about things like denying the resurrection and you know denying the existence of god although i think there probably are still priests and bishops who who do those things it's more about kind of um it's more about political causes and trying to improve things and you know you kind of i don't i don't really i don't really understand it because it, it's never really appealed to me but i guess you go to church in order to sort of you know hear hear about those sorts of things and i i've i i resonate very strongly with the idea that um christianity um can be can be communicated to people existentially and that it makes sense to people if you if you try and connect it with their sort of um their felt experience so like the experience you were just talking about of guilt for example or of not even of guilt but of feeling that you are broken in some way and you don't sort of function properly um you know that that is that is um explicable upon a kind of traditional christian view of things isn't it it's 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 because of sin it's because we live in a broken world and the gospel answers answers that existential um, the existential questions which are raised by those experiences. So it does seem to me that that, that contrast between a sort of desupernaturalized vision of Christianity and a supernaturalized vision of Christianity, it seems to me that that, that contrast is still something that is, is extremely relevant. And I, I don't know, obviously the context, the context is different, isn't it? But between the 19, the late 19th, early 20th century and today, right. But but we're still essentially dealing with the same sorts of things. I mean, what, what do you think, Clinton? My 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 guess is that in the you know in that earlier time period, it was more obvious that people were you know followers of I don't know H.G. Wells or um, I don't know Thomas Hardy or or, or uh, Nietzsche or Darwin. Uh, were, yeah, he he lists those figures, of, right? Yeah, yeah, people were probably more aware of what they're doing than they are now. I think people are just sort of you know, fall into it in a kind of unreflective way now, but it was much more of a kind of, um, it was much more of a kind of mode of, of being back then, a kind of fashionable thing, you know, like I, I you know, I follow HG Wells or whatever. I mean, I, I'm not sure about that, but is that, is that, is that right? I'm trying to think about the intellectual fads of today, because I do think you do find these, these popular intellectual bestsellers. And I guess we'll get more into that as he gets more into it, but yeah. Um, so yeah, it's not it's not exactly the same, right? So yeah. it's not like your average person on the street is saying, you know, I'm with Nietzsche or I'm with Marx or whatever. Yeah. But I do think the kind of intellectual errors yeah. 
are still inspiring people. And I'm not saying that, that their intellectual heirs are doing the identical same work. Uh, to go back to my earlier point, I think it's rhyming. You know, you know, it's different in many ways. But, yeah. but I do think there are some similarities. So one passage that I think was really interesting, he, he is talking about the Victorian era and how it was not necessarily inspiring of a view of, of salvation or, or of great, you know, heroism or, or that kind of thing. But instead people were trying to give you kind of ideas of an intellectual or a mechanical system, you know, an Adam Smith economy or, a, or you know, a Freudian biology or whatever yeah. is a kind of a way to interpret reality, but it didn't necessarily give you a clear common purpose and common goal or even, even individual purpose or individual goal. And so he contrasts that and he says he's kind of sensing in society and in the intellectual climate and so on that souls are once again ready to be taken out of the, the inferno and up the mountain of purgation and into the light of, of paradise where they can, you know, see, see the saints dance, you know, that sort of thing. And I, I think that's part of where I'm seeing a similarity as well. So like you were saying, he, he says the people he, he's basically saying that, that this is an age of religion that he's observing rising, whereas the previous age was one of skepticism. Right. And I think right now, you know, the, the new atheists had their, their day, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. And, yeah. and before that you had kind of liberalism had its day after the fall of, of communism. And people said, this is the end of history. You know, that there are no more grand narratives or, or great stories that are going to be inspiring people, but we're just going to have this kind of, utilitarian liberal society where we progress indefinitely or whatever. Yeah. I, and I think right now, instead you have people with these different visions of, of salvation, of, of heaven, of, of paradise. Right. Yeah. And so I was, I was trying to think of the parallels and we can go more into it uh, philosophically, but just to give it a kind of shorthand. So you brought up HD um, Wells and he said, during his day, you know, one of the, the new gods kind of people were worshiping was the idea of socialism, that you can create this paradise through collective action that's going to bring about, you know, the, the salvation of man. Yeah. And then he also said, simultaneously, you had rising, I think he said it's an even kind of scarier development, this Nietzschean, he yeah. called it a will to life, but, you know, some people will talk about the will to power. Yeah. And I... I I think if I had to think of, obviously there are many more false gods in our kind of new age of faith, but if I had to put my finger on two of them that I think when I look at my contemporaries and say, okay, what do you think is the highest good or what do you worship? It seems like expressive individualism. Yeah. The, the idea that there's this authentic self that needs to be expressed outwardly. And if anyone tries to, to say that, you know, we, we have a, sinful desires or we might have ignorance about our true identity because of our fallen nature they would say that's mean or, or uh, oppressive or or sh should be um punished you know the, the people who would who would have those kind of theological qualms or limits on the self yeah and the, the second one that i see rising it and i guess it's sort of compatible perhaps in some ways but is a sort of statist collectivism that if, if we look around at, at this fallen world and all the injustice going on, uh, th there's a faith that if we just gave power to the right people to run the state, to, to, to run the collective, they could bring about uh, paradise and equality yeah. and a better society than we've ever had before. Yeah. And, and so those are both different gods than the Christian God and different messages in the Christian message, because they don't seem to recognize that we're fallen and sinful. Yeah. And so the, the, the individual self can, can err and, and um, do things that are wrong. And also the elites, you know, who rule a state could err and are wrong. So that's why Christian, yeah, so, yeah. yeah I have limits, you know, yeah. I don't know. No, no, I think that's fascinating. So, so two two things, I guess, to to pick up on there, because I think I think you're right, and uh, there, it opens up lots of things. But so let's let's just um, think about this for a minute. So, so basically, we're talking about the things which become in their extreme forms communism and, and fascism, right? So, 
but you at one point there you said you sort of thought maybe they were compatible with each other but i'm just i i'm not really i it seems to me that they if you think about those two sort of psychological attitudes in an yes. individual I, I find it hard to see how they could coexist without contradiction in in an individual so so yeah so maybe 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 speak to that first and then then the other thing i was going to say i might bring up in a minute so I, I don't think they're systematically compatible, but let's go back to the what, what Figgis is talking about, because I think yeah. we can make draw an analogy. So the, the Nietzschean will to power or or will to life that he's describing yeah. is not the same in terms of its in, in terms of the way a proponent of it would articulate himself as the the, the Marxist um, call to communism or socialism, right? Um, insofar as the Marxist wants a more equal and compassionate society, at least that's how he would articulate it, right? And, and the Nietzschean wants the, the heroic, the strong to rise to the top and fully achieve his greatness. Uh, these are extremely simplistic, you know, I'm drawing with, with, um, with, with big, big, big line, big bold strokes, you know. Bold brush, yeah. Yeah, but, but um, you can imagine, right, that, that even if, theoretically and systematically there are contradictions that you could have a strong man rise to the top of a communist state, you know, a la Stalin or Mao, mm. and, and then exercise his, um, I don't want to call it excellence, but his power, uh, his, his will to life, whatever. And I know people would say this is not what Nietzsche is actually calling for, that that's a misreading of Nietzsche, and this is not what Marx is actually calling for. But I'm just saying that because of fallen human nature and because of sin, yeah. that these particular um, faiths can lead to these things, yeah. even though it's not what people who, who adopt these faiths intend. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that, that leads me to the second sort of thing I... I I wanted to say, which is something I've been thinking about quite a bit recently, is this, this notion of sin. And I wonder whether this, this particular doctrine is, or, you know, the doctrine of the fall or, or have you want to put it, but this particular issue theologically and anthropologically is really the difference between um, this kind of liberal Christianity that we've been talking about, broadly speaking, and a more sort of traditional Christianity. Because if you don't have a, if you don't have a doctrine of sin as, as, you know, um, as, as a you know fallenness and 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 uh, um, falling short of, of what God wants from us and so on you don't have you don't have a you don't have a um, a protology so you don't have a you don't have a garden of Eden you don't have a, a perfect creation uh, you don't have an aboriginal peace um, which is then spoiled you just have this what we have now mm -hmm. and so, so so the only option is that to improve this through human effort which is of course possible because we're not we're not broken and, and fallen because of sin and, and flawed and, and fundamentally um, fundamentally misguided in our inclinations and so on. So so there's no protology. There's all there's ultimately no um, eschatology apart from what we bring about ourselves. Right. And so so but but if you introduce the notion of sin and the notion of the fall then this creation that we're living in now is 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 fallen and and broken and isn't, doesn't really resemble what it was originally you know in any in any kind of um in any full way at all you know we maybe have glimpses of of, of that um we can't we can't rescue ourselves we can't bring about some kind of utopia by ourselves because sin is too powerful a force in our lives and in in the universe or in the cosmos or however you want to put it and ultimately we look to christ um to save us through atoning for sin and and, and defeating sin uh, through through the resurrection and we look to him to to bring about the new world in, in the in the second coming so so one of these one of these views of christianity is, is sort of a fundamentally kind of um sort of um sort of pelagian uh, understanding of, of human human achievement as as bringing about salvation or, or a utopia and the other one is about the human need to be rescued by christ and i suppose both of those kind of impulses the kind of socialist impulse um taken to that kind of extreme and also the nietzschean impulse both in their different ways imply the human capacity to bring about a world which is significantly better than this one and also to kind of reshape human beings so that they can they can improve in some kind of 
they can they can sort of evolve to a kind of second you know a sort of a, a, evolve to a new stage beyond what they are now i suppose um they can they can be engineered or they can sort of strengthen themselves or i don't know do, does that make sense do you, do you agree with that I think it does make sense. And this is why he thinks revelation is so important, right? What, what, what's our stance on revelation? So if we look at his chapter on revelation, yeah, yeah. early on, he, he raises this question, is Christianity merely an episode that's going to be superseded uh, by the progress of culture? Or is it actually, you know, veritable, true um, revelation? And is it, is it true religion? You know, is, is it, actually something that, that is true for all times and in all places yeah. and he's saying yes it is and, and so the idea of original sin or our need for a savior in jesus christ this all makes way more sense if you think god actually revealed himself in holy scripture right yeah yeah so that that seems like a crucial place where he takes the conversation yeah and so is, he, is he a sort of uh, proto-Bartian uh, Clinton or, or what's his? No, no, I, I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I'm still digging into his theology, but I, I don't think he's, he's um, rejecting the other ways that God shows himself or reveals, reveals himself. So, you know, the traditional Catholic position would be that God reveals himself in the two books of, of uh, nature and also scripture or or special revelation yeah. and and um, general revelation, and I think that Figus would affirm that. So I, I'm not. I don't think he's denigrating Christian reason or denigrating reason. Yeah. Um, but he does say that that Christianity asks us to do things that we would not come up with on our own reason. Yeah. So if we only had general revelation, you, you know, we, we wouldn't arrive at the idea that God became man, yes. died, and rose again. Like, that would not be something on our own creativity, we, we, or, or not even just creativity, on our own reason we come up with. Yeah. What, what do you think? It, to me, that doesn't seem... I, I'm trying to think if he actually addresses the question of natural law. Um, I don't think in this section that's what he's focused on, but yeah, I, I would yeah, be shocked. But often, yeah. often when people are addressing, so he's, he's, he's sort of um, speaking in this kind of context of, of modernism and uh, loss of faith and everything like that, isn't he? Which, which to assert, I mean, I, I guess, you know, Bart was slightly later, but he was doing a similar thing, wasn't he? When he was responding to, he, he himself had a, had a phase in his, his life where he basically was a liberal and he started preaching and it was just you know nobody was responding and everyone was incredibly bored and then he <laughs> discovered he sort of discovered the word of god and right. um you know and its power to transform people and um you know and and you could look at that from a from a more catholic perspective and say well that was you know it was kind of it was probably an overreaction but it was an overreaction that probably was was um, was not inappropriate given the given the context that he was he was speaking to and um you know it seems i mean i as i say i'm just all i've read of these quotes that you've given me but it seems perhaps it is a kind of similar is a kind of similar thing here in insofar as he's emphasizing this this need for special revelation and you, you know you can't right. have this sort of bland anodyne idea that um you know i i don't i don't even again i don't even know i don't really even understand the liberal position but you know in terms of if you don't believe in miracles you know what what's go, what is going on with with jesus you know is he you know did, was he really born of a virgin did he did he not rise from the dead do you know what i mean these kind of questions you know? well and, and i think you're right in our generation most people will agree with the statements you find directly in the creed right yeah uh so yeah, you'll sometimes meet kind of older priests who still have their bell bottoms on that'll deny the incarnation or the resurrection. But among people our age, theologians or priests or whatever, it seems like most people are willing to go there and, and even to recognize the supernatural power of the sacraments. Yeah. They, they seem less comfortable with the idea of sin yeah. and the need for... Jesus to, to die on the cross to save us from our sins. That seems to make people uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't know. Do you, what do you think? That, does that seem true? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's spot on. And again, it's it's one of these things where um, the atonement is is particularly sort of hard to make sense of if it's not if it's not an atonement for human sin. I guess I guess you can kind of interpret it in that sort of um, Abelardian way as a as a sort of um, demonstration of God's love for us. But it seems to be a kind of um, insufficient explanation. You know, I mean. God could God can demonstrate His love for us in in many ways. He doesn't need to be tortured on on a on a cross um, to do that. It, it seems kind of it doesn't seem to use um, the kind of language that Thomas Aquinas would have, would have used. It doesn't it doesn't seem to have that sense of convenientia, you know, fittingness. Um, fittingness. So, fittingness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's not sort of congruent with with the two. The idea is not congruent with the with the with the reality of what happened. So. Um, so i mean you know, so, so I, I, I guess i i go on well i was just going to say i remember when i was at college somebody said we were at this interfaith thing and somebody said to you know a hindu you know jesus is one of the most important prophets in christianity you know and that's that kind of you know it sort of sums sums up in some ways what i'm trying to say it's 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 like jesus is he's important and he's you know he was a right. you know, he was a great teacher and maybe he reveals something to us of God's love, but is he, you know, is he the Messiah who who was sacrificed uh, for our in order to atone for our sins and to rise from the dead for our justification? Um, you know that that aspect of it is is significantly less clear. Um, that's my that's my sort of view anyway. Yeah. So. <laughs> You know, sp- speaking of fittingness, I think part of why I was drawn to this is we're now in Eastertide. Yeah. We, we went through Holy Week. We saw Jesus give himself up under the, the powers that be in order to, to save us from our own brokenness and sin. And I think that Easter is a time of good news. And even though we're talking about some of the rougher parts of the human condition here. I, I do think that Figgis is, is getting his, his purpose in this is to share the good news. And so it is a really a message of hope that he's sharing. Could, could you maybe speaking of the fittingness of this particular talk for Eastertide, is there any way under the revelation section, a few quotes down, would you read the one that, that starts, uh, it is laid down as yeah. the duty? Yeah, so, um, <laughs> yeah, there's some capital letters in Greek, which I think I know what they, they say. So, uh, it is laid down as the duty of the Holcian preacher to defend, defend revealed religion. And it is of Christian faith as revealed that we are, so that's that's pi, omega, lambda, and what's that one that looks like a Y? Is that gamma? I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Do you know what that means? Uh, no, you know, I, I'm not sure. Keep keep going. But... I think it, I I don't know what it means. So that we are those four letters to think that faith by which we see the world world as a society of free, created, and immortal spirits, a world of real chances and incalculable catastrophes, a world of broken harmonies of pain and sin, with all its maker known to us as father and friend, his love flashing out in the most astounding marvels, the incarnation and death of the one begotten, whose rising is less a wonder than his dying if he be who he is, who by his cross redeems us now, and in his body the church gives us in baptism in the Eucharist the very spirit and essence of eternal life. This world with God, its blazing fact, and prayer and faith, real forces stronger than the armies of evil, though quite congruous to common sense in our inner life, is incongruous with any mechanical system, whether of forces or ideas, or with an absolute which is unrevealed, even unrevealable, sorry, even in symbol. End quote. Yes. So, so I think he's laying out the good news that comes from recognizing the reality of miracles, of revealed truth, of sin and salvation. And, and it's extremely powerful, right? And, yeah. Yeah. and so, I don't know, when he lays it out like that, and you think about what people are looking for, as we were talking about this being an age of faith and Okay, well, let's back up. Did you buy my argument that we've kind of entered a new age of faith? Do you think the there's a parallel faith, there? The new age of faith now, you're saying? Yeah, uh, I think there's a parallel. Yeah, so, I mean, I'd be interested to know, I'd be interested to know more about why you're saying that. I mean, I've, I've written a bit about this in my, in my doctorate because I, I've written a, a, about um, Charles Taylor's secular age. But, but what, what's your view? What are the signs that we're moving into a new age of faith now? 
So I guess just to circle back to what we were talking about is that I don't think people are satisfied with, with just kind of um, being told by their elites or professors or whatever. You just need to focus on your own little bubble of utility for yourself, but instead they're captured by these grand visions of sweeping reform to society yeah. that, that will bring about heaven on earth or, or salvation or whatever. And, and so they have these really high views of what is ultimately good and what should be sacrificed or in, in order to achieve it or, you know, what sort of conflicts are worth having in order to achieve it. Yeah. And, and so to my mind, that's not an age of, as he puts it um hesitation and doubt, but, but it is one of affirmation. You know, right. That yeah. we, so we when, really, we're yeah. all in, we're gung ho for this, you know, yeah. you can't so stop. You belief, you don't, yeah. Sorry. So when you talk about belief, you don't necessarily mean supernatural belief. You just mean sort of affirmation and belief in in general right yeah so this is interesting as well he he kind of talks about the ways that belief can also turn into a sort of pantheism so right. instead of worshiping the creator the transcendent creator you know we're worshiping the creation yeah and and so i think he also includes that kind of pantheism whether or not people would say they're pantheists yeah. as a, a sort of faith yeah. um and yeah. yeah so i mean his his uh here's a reflection that I have. I mean, I, I do, I think I agree. I think I agree with what you're saying. Um, and it's interesting to think about the different ways that this word faith can be used because I think yeah. you can use it. Um, and I don't even mean this in a kind of pejorative way, but, but faith is like about placing your ultimate trust in something, isn't it? Regardless of whether or not yeah. that thing has, has the right to um, arrogate to itself that trust. So it's, it's interesting to me in the, in the, you know, if you go back to the 19th, 20th century, and then probably the kind of manifestation of this in the new atheists, there's this sort of um, view that science has this kind of, this sort of omnipotent power to, to explain everything and, and to do everything. And I think, I mean, I think that that, that is a, that is a faith position and it's, it's always been a faith position, but it was, okay. it was masquerading as a, it was masquerading as some kind of, you know, um, intellectually respectable um, objective belief in objectivity or something like that and um, it's interesting to me now that the the new atheist thing has has died away but we we increasingly have this sense of um, of um, of uh, deference to expertise to right. the point where people are people are disenfranchised um, to the extent that they're not even allowed to use their own rationality anymore so, so I think that that is a kind of religious dogmatism. It's just, it's just directed towards different sources of deference. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know really how that, how that relates to what we're talking about, but, but does that, does that make sense? I think, I think we're definitely living in an age of faith and, and in, in a sense we always have been, but, but it's just a question of where your, where your faith is directed. Okay. That, that, that's fair. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying is that, People, people who place their faith in nat the scientific method and, and some metaphysical naturalism or whatever, yeah. that, that, that itself was just another form of faith. And so even if we're moving into these other iterations of, 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 of worship or um, yeah. commitment that I'm talking about in terms of expressive individualism and status collectivism, that's just not necessarily a new thing to have people yeah. put their their yeah. trust in something but it's just a different thing they're putting their trust in yeah yeah but yeah so i guess that that could, that could be that could be true but i still think there's a parallel between what he's seeing in terms of the shift from the victorian to the early 20th century and, yeah. and the shift from the kind of 1990s post cold war to now yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, so we're going from a, a, a shift from a kind of, a kind of doubtful negative attitude to a more sort of positive and affirming. Attitude. That's what he says. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I can see that. I can see that. So just to follow up what I've just said, I mean, I guess the interesting thing for me, and I'm sure you, you are interested in this as well, is, is the idea that something might be shifting in people's psyches where they, they see they see that, you know, for example, what I was, what I was just trying to articulate is, is true, that this is a kind of, this is a kind of um, metaphysical commitment to, to scientism and naturalism and so on. And that they, they, um, 
they in in seeing that reality they are more able to critique it and that this is potentially a way of 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 bringing in the supernatural again because people realize that this is not some kind of objective um objective reality uh, but it is you know it is a sort of faith position but um i i guess also this idea of affirmation is is significant as well because um well well i mean talk to me talk to me about it a bit more but but could it be the case that I mean, my, my view is that if, if people, you know, when people do affirm these kind of godless, um, these godless man-centered political visions of reality, they, they inevitably end up disappointed because they always end in disaster and, you know, mass murders and, and gulags and things like that. So, so what, what do you think? Do you think we're heading in that direction, you know, because people are being more affirmative of, of these kind of man-centered political philosophies, which inevitably sort of, uh, climax in this sort of uh, idolatrous uh, political religions or, or what? What's your view? I'm not sure if I want to take my crystal ball out, although I think I read somewhere that, that uh, Father Figgis was willing to take his crystal ball out. Right, he okay. said that there would be a great war and that afterward people would turn back to um, the, the sort of Christian doctrine of, of sin and the atonement in a way that they had shied away from before the war. Right. So he, he was willing to, to step out on a limb to an extent that, that I'm not. So but I do think... About, he was talking about the First World War there, right? He was. He was talking right. about the First World War. He yeah. thought that that's where these philosophies were leading. Right. And I hope it doesn't come to that. You know, we'll, we'll pray um, yeah. that, that it doesn't come to that. But, but I do think it's interesting. So he's, he's saying that in this kind of moment of deep devotion that he's observing, he, he thinks some Christians might think this is much worse for Christianity, right? All, all of a sudden people are worshiping these strange gods. He seems to think that that's not necessarily the case. So he says, look at the second uh, or third century in the Roman empire. Yeah. It would have seemed like people have this, this deep devotion to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and, and the, the desire for power. And, and yet, Christianity suddenly um, came of age, and, and there was a mass conversion, and, and things really bloomed, and Christianity started transforming society, and people started to be less afraid of death, and to, to um, care for the poor, and to care for the widow, and to care for the, the infant, and so on. And, and the, the society was transformed. You know, people entered the waters of baptism, and, and were healed of their their sin and so on. So it, it's, it's really interesting that he thinks these kind of moments are also opportunities. They're not just dangers, yeah. Yeah. although they are dangerous. Yeah. Do you yeah. think oh, he might be onto something there? Well, I mean, I, I really hope so. I mean, that'd be, that'd be really good if we could have all of that stuff without, without some kind of major, major breakdown. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's impossible to say, isn't it? But I, my, my sense is just, just on the, you know, on the ground as it were, um, in a sort of, um, in, in a sort of reasonably kind of normal parish that I'm in is that, um, that I think that, that there definitely are more opportunities for evangelism and for sharing the gospel than there used to be, um, and I, I do think that people are becoming more and more open, particularly as these these political philosophies become more manifest and more more strident. Uh, I think, in a spiritual sense, it's because people sense that these things are very dark and that they have a spiritual aspect to them. As as I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it felt like that um, in Germany in the 1930s, and you know, in, in Stalinist Russia. I'm sure that, you know, because I believe that people are fundamentally um, not just matter, but also uh, they have a spiritual component to themselves as well. They they sense this. So I think that as we see these these, I think did you call them strong gods or you know, yes, yeah, basically as as we see them manifesting more and more obviously, I think people are inevitably they're drawn to them or repulsed away from them. And then if they're repulsed away from them, then that that's when they then when that's when they have an opportunity to to uh, to think about potentially other ways of viewing their, their lives apart from, a, you know, aside from a kind of bland anodyne secularism. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can, I can see that happening. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what, what, you, what your view is uh, on that, but, but that's kind of my view. 
So I, I'm in kind of a weird situation right now because since I'm in a university context, I don't yeah. feel like I have the pulse yeah. of, of kind of the ordinary people that he's talking about who are living life rather than theorizing about life. Yeah. So I think you have a better feel for what that's like. But I do think that what he's saying about it becoming clear that you got, you as Bob Dylan once said, you got to serve somebody. It may be yeah. the devil or it may be the Lord. Yeah. I think T.S. Eliot also says this, uh, that, that if you're not going to worship God, pay your respects to Stalin or Hitler. Yeah. That, that we're getting to a moment in society and in our philosophy that, that it's becoming clear you need to, there's not like a sort of neutral stance that, that you're going to be participating in one way of life one view of, of, of the good. You're going to be lo looking at things with a view of the highest good. You're going, when you wake up and, and go about your day, you're, you're going to be participating in some kind of community that's oriented around a vision of the good life. And, and so what's it going to be? Because there are very contrasting visions on offer. I think that's becoming more and more clear. We're in a, I guess more polarizing time would be the sort of politically shallow way to put it, but I think like you're saying, there's something spiritually clear. There's a distinct spiritual meaning and sense to these different ways of life and ways of seeing the world. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so when, I mean, when we talk about human needs, I mean, this is, this is something that Charles Taylor talks about in a secular age, you know, um, the way that, that secularism in its kind of, um, in its sort of um, more pervasive form, it creates this sort of, this sort of flat atmosphere where people, people sort of do things and they live their lives, but they're not really sure why they're, what the significance of, of the, what they're doing is. So you can, you can do things like, you know, watch TV or, or go and watch a football match or, you know, go for a walk or have a nice meal or go to the cinema. But um, there's no sort of, there's no sort of, um, there's no obvious hierarchy of, of, of goods, you know, that sort of leads to some sort of ultimate good or some kind of transcendent good. And so it sort of creates this sort of strange atmosphere of, he calls it flatness, a sort of phen phenomenological flatness. Um, and I find that idea kind of interesting. I mean, I think you see it in lots of, in lots of literature, like, um, you know, uh, the two examples I used in my PhD were of, um, I think it's Richard Yates' uh, Revolutionary Road. And um, the other one I used was, was um, Brett Easton Ellis' uh, American Psycho you know, both, both of which are very good films as well, but, but this in different ways, I don't know whether you know those two books, but in different ways, they sort of um, depict people who are living in the sort of flatness of secularism and they, they don't really know how to sort of get out of it. And so they, they do these, well, um, Patrick Bateman in American Psycho goes on a, a kind of killing spree uh, and the, the couple in Revolutionary Row try and sort of find themselves through sort of unconventional um, sort of, uh, uh, attempt to sort of branch out into bohemia after they've been living this kind of suburbanite lifestyle but um but that's that's the way i essentially i this the sort of phenomenology of secularism that's the way i see it it ends up creating this kind of flatness and i think um the one of the ways that potentially we as christians and, and as ministers of the gospel can can reach people is by trying to appeal to that sense of flatness, you know, and saying, look, there is a, there is more, you know, I mean, I'm going to start, I'm going to sound like I'm on the alpha course here, but you know, there is more to life than just these things and that these things in themselves are not insignificant, but that they have some kind of, you know, I'd say it in a more accessible way than this, but you know, they have some, they bear some kind of analogical relationship to a transcendent good. Um, and, and so they don't just terminate upon themselves. Um, and then, and then it sort of opens up the question again. I'd use different language, but it sort of opens up questions around metaphysics and 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 all those kind of things. I don't know. Does does any of that make sense? I think it does. I think what you're describing in terms of the sort of dissatisfaction one might have with secularism and with sort of daily desires being satisfied or yeah. daily appetites being met, to totally makes sense that people could could get dissatisfied with that and one of the things that's fascinating about what Figgis is saying here. So after he talks about the Roman situation, uh, he, he says that the church was assailed on all sides. You know, it looked like it would definitely be crushed yeah. given, given the odds, but, but yet it, it survived, you know, so people would pronounce it dead and it would come back. And I think this is interesting because he's saying in an age 
that's characterized by affirmation like this, you have these new fads that come up in terms of, I mean, like like you're saying, there are all various ways of, of worshiping the creation rather than the yeah. creator, but but different, and he says kind of dazzling and exciting new ones will yeah. rise up. And you'll think, oh, this is how we can save the world. This is how we can make things a be- make this a better place. This is the solution. How did everyone not see this? They were all fools before us. They were all more morally backward and so on. And he says these things come up, but then you'll see that they only last for a decade, and then they're gone. They're gone. They didn't. They didn't actually deliver what they promised. Yeah. And people are on to the next next thing to, to affirm to the next the next god to worship. Well, not that they're necessarily. They could be a related you know, um, a different angle on the same God, I suppose. Yeah. But, but it's fascinating how he sees this pattern. Yeah. And what he says is interesting about Christianity, even though during some of these decades, when there's some other ascendant God to worship, Christianity can look kind of out of date or old fashioned or, or dour, or like we should call um, the, when you have a corpse, you need to call the morgue, you know, we, we should call the morgue. We have the corpse, Christianity is dead. He, he says, you know, it's permanent. It doesn't, it actually, it, it transcends these fads and it sustains over time. And yeah. so I, I really thought that some of those passages were quite profound and, and beautiful and encouraging. Yeah. I mean, I just, I keep on coming back in my own mind to this story of the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis. You know, it's like this, this failed kind of uh, utopian uh, cross-party uh, experiment in, in architecture. You know, it's it's like this. Uh, it's such a it's such a powerful story, isn't it? You know, man trying to reach heaven with his with his massive tower, and then failing because he can't cooperate. You know, it's mm-hmm. and this is this is the reason that this is I think a really strong apologetic for Christianity, isn't it? It's that the church, the church is you know it's so it's so bad in so many ways, but it's still here, and it's, <laughs> still we still have Orthodox Christianity. Right. Uh, and you look at you know you look at these these uh, regimes of the 20th century, and and before and and they're as you say they've all they've all just completely failed and they've not only failed but they've ended in absolute abject horror and and like a kind of hell on earth, and my worry is that what 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 we're what we're heading for now is it is a similar thing it will be different it will be probably a lot more sort of global and uh, you know globalized and um, it will be be oriented orientated around the technology we have now but it will be essentially the same sort of thing it will be a tower of babel uh which will which will fail and it will it will it will you know it will, it will at its worst it has the potential to to um to cause a kind of hell on earth and um obviously we don't want that to happen but but regardless of what's going on you know this is why this is why um this is why we have to believe in the church and, and the church's enduring power um, through that's given to her by the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and as I say, when we, when we look at the facts of history, we can see that that is, that that is the reality and it can give us, it can give us faith and trust and hope confidence that it will continue to be so. Um, yeah. So this is interesting because he, after talking about the example of Rome and after talking about the kind of rise and fall of these various gods, he goes on to turn back to the question of miracles and faith. Yeah. And so he's, he says that, that faith is an act of the will yeah. and it's an act that requires courage. So God is asking us to put our faith in him, even though we don't always see him. Or the church might look like it could fall or, or um, collapse or something. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, people might be calling the morgue. However, he's saying that it's an act of courage on our part to say, no, Christianity yeah. actually has true things to say about, about what we're like as people, about the problem of sin. It has true things to say about the God who saves, you know, it has true things to say about how we should relate to each other and the limits we should place on the self and the limits we should place on the state and so on. Yeah. And, and so we we're going to put our faith in it, even though people might in a particular decade laugh at you yeah. or people might think that's foolish. Look at the, the, the knaves who are in power in certain circles or certain parts of the church or look at the sins of the church or the failures of the church or whatever. And I thought that was interesting that he says, you know, there's a connection between God working miracles, God entering uh, 
his own creation in the person of Jesus Christ to face the greatest powers that the world had ever known. And the call for us to have the courage to put our faith in God, even though we have reasons to doubt. Yeah. 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 I like that. Hey, Clinton, we've been going now for about an hour or so, so I think we should probably wrap it up soon. Do you have any sort of concluding thoughts or or does that sort of stand as a really good concluding thought? Um, I mean, I do think that we'll have to read more figures as, as yeah. time goes on, because yeah. I think he's really valuable. What do you think of him as an interlocutor so far? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm enjoying it. I think, as I say, I think that this is highly relevant stuff. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always of the opinion, as I, I'm sure I've shared with you before, that, you know, I'm, I'm not into just sort of academic stuff for academic stuff's sake, but for actually having some kind of impact in the real world, you know, like Karl Marx says, yeah. although of course I don't, I don't approve of Karl Marx in general. Just want to put it out right. there. You know, the, our task, as or as a paraphrase of Karl Marx, our task as theologians is not just to uh, describe the world, but to to change the world. I mean, obviously with God's grace, but um, I think that this these these kind of uh, questions of of how to how to understand our culture and how to reach our culture, I think this is this is absolutely uh, crucial. And um, yeah, we didn't, we haven't actually really talked about the contemporary church, but I think it would be interesting as well to consider, you know, um, whether the church is doing a good job or not of understanding these things, <laughs> possibly a little <laughs> bit more controversial and, and too, too much for, for, for now, but yeah, yeah, I'm enjoying it. Okay. Well, well, thanks. And I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really um, hoping to read more of him as time goes on and have uh, Patrick, Patrick on to talk about maybe the kind of, social side of his thought and the political side of his thought. I think yeah. that could be really interesting. And th- thanks for yeah, make, making the time, Father. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, and if any of our listeners want to email us, uh, our address is holycv one at gmail.com. And our Twitter account, I think, is at holycv one uh, So you can follow us there as well. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.